the Ursa's claws. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Age of Darkness podcast. This is the third of our Siege of Terra special episodes. As everybody knows, uh, we've been uh, resisting the temptation to split the Siege of Terra books into multiple uh, different episodes. We want to do single uh, special episodes. And uh, today I am joined by, of course, Darren and also a very special guest. Mark's back. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Just absolutely delighted to have you back, my friend. And yeah, today we're talking about the first wall by Gaff Thor. Um, so I guess before we, we go into this, we need an efficient synopsis. Anyone want to throw, uh, throw one out there? Well, I'm going to pass this one to Mark first because Mark is always the expert on the uh, efficient synopses. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a while, but I think um, this would be- best be summarized as um, get others to do your dirty work for you. That's fair. That is fair. Yeah. Let's go with that. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyone want to recap where we're at in the Siege of Terror as we're coming into the first wall? So the traders have made landfall, haven't they? They, they have they have now landed. Yeah, they, they, they've won the solar the solar operation, right? They smashed the solar operation <laughs> with, with the with the daughter of work. Um which is the largest space hulk we have ever seen. But just basically, it's, it's such a Perturabo thing, though. Like, oh man, we got a, uh, we got like Pluto, or like was it Uranus? That's like just, I don't know, it's a giant like a moon full of weapons. So what do you do? Throw a giant moon full of weapons at it. Problem yeah. solved. Yeah. For for every force, there was an equal and opposite reaction. Um, so yes, so they've smashed the solar wall. Trade forces have made landfall, including the first of the Astartes forces have made landfall. Uh, the Imperial Palace is surrounded by weird dark mechanicum machinery, and they are desperately trying to smash down the Emperor's Aegis shield. Yeah, in, in um, Lost and Damned, essentially, Perturabo uh, realizes that uh, using Astartes here is, is useless. So just throw uh, tons of militia at the problem and hope for the best. So as 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 we're moving from Lost and Damned into First Wall, the traders have established their their siege lines around the Imperial Palace, and um, they have space superiority. But you still need to break through those walls. So yeah, let's start think, with that. I think Sorry. the other thing we we to recognize as well is that moment. This is still very much conventional warfare. There's no Neverborn at all. The Emperor's Shield is yes. holding everything back. So the traitor Primarchs, that have, uh, well, the cult traitor Primarchs that have already turned, they're a moment completely neutralized. They can only rampage outside of the Imperial Palace and no Neverborn at all are engaged in this type of fighting at this moment in time. So it is just conventional typical heresy era warfare as we've seen for the last seven years yeah it's important to make the distinction between uh, the demon primarchs and actual like pure demons the demon primarchs have some connection to the materium um whereas demons have done so at least like you know angron which <laughs> he just do uh, he 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 um in 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 
in, in the last book, he essentially like uh, jumps off the conqueror onto terror. <laughs> but he has some connection to the physical world. Uh, demons cannot manifest. Yeah, and Fulgrim's having a retirement of his life with all the human population. Yeah, they don't really describe what he's doing, and I'm yeah. kind of happy they don't. Not in this book, they don't. Not in this one, they don't. And that comes later. But Mark, what's the strategy? How do you how, how do you solve this? Okay, you have a you have a conundrum. You have a problem. Um, yeah. How do you break in? Like, how do you solve? Because the Dorne has had seven years to fortify the Imperial Palace. How do you fucking break into this? The 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 biggest strong point in the galaxy. Well, that kind of like uh, they, they. Well, strategically here, like where where they're attacking from, they're attacking from the north into Lionsgate Spaceport and. Um, like you said, Dorne's been pre- preparing for this for years, and he knows that, you know, Perturabo is going to be the one to dismantle everything. But Perturabo kind of has a eureka moment where he's like, why don't I just use another commander that he hasn't been planning for? And it's almost like a, um, a chaos. Like, it, 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 the, the assault is almost pure chaos. And uh, it, it's it's difficult to describe, cause, right? Because we were, we were pre-talking about like, what is the Lionsgate spaceport? And you're describing it as an elevator. Like, it's a space elevator. Yeah. Like, it goes right up into what? The mesosphere or the. It goes right up into orbit. So you yeah. have this giant, like, because it's not a spaceport. Like, if you've played the, uh, you know, that, you know, the board game, the, the Heresy board game? Yeah. Like, the way that, like, the, the, the spaceport looks, it's like, it doesn't look like that. It's a giant. It's, it, it really is um, a continent. But like vertically, vertically spaced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's like nothing else in sci-fi, isn't it? Because I, it, it, I, we often kind of rele- uh, relate to other sci-fi shows. So it, it's not like Star Trek, where they have these massive docks in space. Yeah. It's not like Star Wars, like Mos Eisley, when there's clear landing pads where ships come down. This is uniquely forty k. Yeah. Because the ships directly dock into the spaceport. That's the thing. They, it's not landing stuff. They dock directly into the spaceport. It's 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 a space elevator. The problem yeah. that Horus has given, essentially, um, and I think this is from Lost in the Dam mainly, but Horus tells Perturabo, we need to land the Titans. Like, we have all these Titans, we need to land them. But if we try to land them like normally, they're just going to be shot down because Titan landers are kind of slow and Dorne has a lot of firepower. So how yeah. do we land the Titans? You take the spaceport. But that's also giving you an idea about how large the Lionsgate starport is as well. In fact, you can dock ships that will deposit Titans. And the ti- yeah, you can elevate the Titans back down. <laughs> yeah. You need to take this. Yeah, I- I- exactly. They they need they can't like because they could just destroy it, but then their Titans will be stuck, right? And they won't be able to utilize them later when they need And them. it's the same reason that like later on, well, not to spoil anything because that's what we do there, but like l- later on when uh, when they lose Lionsgate, spoiler warning, um, when they lo- uh, Dorne is like, we can't destroy it because Gullen's going to need it. Like, any support, any, like, reinforcements we get is going to need to use the, the spaceport. You can't destroy it. I, yeah. You have to take it. And that's the other reason why the Lionsgate is so important, or the Lionsgate starport is so important, is because it's also the closest starport to one of the major gates into the Imperial Palace. So they could go for other starports, but then they have to have those massive logistic issues of moving the Titans and other equipment to where they need it. 
they go for a lion's gate, they've already at a weak point of imperial powers because all gates, by their very nature, are a weak point, which is why they're often the most heavily fortified. And it's also a weak point in the line. Well, um, yeah, if you look at the, like one of the maps, right? If you look where Lionsgate Spaceport is, if they take that, then they can get into uh, the, the district around Lionsgate and into the city protected by the Eternity Wall, right? Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's the weakest point of the line, isn't it? And it's the most obvious place to attack. That's why Pernarobo doesn't want to attack it. It's like, but, obviously, that's... Dor- Pernarobo knows that Dorne has been preparing. Again, like Mark was saying, like, what's the solution? Just get someone else to do it. But that's this is also one of the interesting things between Dorne and Pernarobo's relationship as well. So when they start massing the troops for the attack, initially, Dorne thinks it's a feint, which is also what <laughs> Pertrabo is relying on him to think as well. So there's a they know each other so well that each one thinks either they won't attack or they won't defend the Lion's Gate because that's what we would expect them to be doing. So we'll put forces in there. And you've got this real weird double guessing and triple guessing each other about what this attack is going to do. As Mark says, what's the perfect way to throw out the equation? Send someone else in to attack. Yeah, uh, like Pertrabo decides to not have anything to do with the the, the, the planning. Because Dorn knows Pernarabo, Pernarabo knows Dorn. But do they know Kroger? <laughs> well, that's it, exactly. I'm looking at the list. You got the three uh, points of his uh, triarch, right? You got Kroger, you've got Falks, and you've got Frox, right? And he picks Kroger, of all people. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah exactly. And, 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 and Forge is like, why the fuck are you picking this guy? And and, and, and then Pernarabo's telling us, it's like, because fucking Kroger, Kroger will... He will beat them into submission. He's not like he will probably lose, and he will like cost a lot of men. But like, you can't predict them. Exactly. Yeah. A lifetime of war had inured Forex to the pound of heavy guns as much as it had the beating of his own hearts. Yet there was something majestic about the power unleashed onto the Imperial Palace by the War Master. The sky itself was blackened, a roiling storm of discharge and plasma through which burning mass driver rounds crashed like meteors and beams of lance light strafed. Pertorabo had unlocked the secrets of the Aegis and had warded the walls, exposing them to direct bombardment and assault, but the Sanctum Imperialists and surrounds were still swathed by energy screens. So too was the Lion's Gate spaceport. The air about it shimmered with barely contained energies. Great guns about the circumference of the spaceport prevented warships from lying to an orbit directly above for fear of counter-bombardment. The risk of a broken starship crashing upon the landing docks they were trying to capture was too great a risk, which had been pointed out to Kroger when he had sent requests to their Primarchs for orbital support. Smaller weapons arrays, still dwarfing those carried by anything smaller than a Titan, ringed the port in bastion outcrops. They roared now, spitting defiance down into the packed regiments of Turncoat Imperial Army and devolved creatures. Anti-air batteries waited their turn to bark rebuke, for Kroger had yet committed this aerial asset to the attack. If Forks had assessed the situation on what he could see, without knowledge of what was to come, he would have laughed off the assault as a piecemeal, uncoordinated affair with no chance of success. It would have been a mistake. Kroger was a straightforward warrior, raised in the best and worst traditions of Iron Warrior's stubbornness and dogma. 
he lacked finesse, or even any desire for finesse, but that did not make him an idiot. Yet explained his plan at length to Forex and Falk, ensuring they understand their parts well enough, as well as his overall objectives. There was nothing to do but enact Kroger's will, or risk the ire of Perturabo, and so Forex had accepted his allotted role without question. There was every chance that his directness was just the hammer needed to break open the Lock of Dorn, as Perturabo believed. Advancing with Bolter in hand, a tide of soldiery and beasts around him, Forex's auto senses picked up the first distinctive cracks of the siege train Lucy's wrath. A dozen kilometers behind him, battery after battery of cannons coughed forth a cloud of shells. The muzzle flare of their anger lit the skies, silhouetting their deadly rounds. A rolling thunder of noise followed, a shockwave that swept over the advancing legionaries and auxiliaries, bending banner poles, fluttering top knots on crusader helms, and washing over the unarmored masses with a hot wind that brought cries of astonishment and dismay. They howled as eardrums split and sinuses burst. Those foolish enough to look upon the moment of firing, left reeling as a flare brighter than the sun, burnt out their sight. The noise of the weapons loosing was as nothing to the detonation of the defensive shields. The bombardment could not reach the highest sections, but was targeted at the middle layers, so that the spaceport seemed girdled by a ring of fire five kilometers high, arcs of power forking ten kilometers to the ground below. The release of so much energy created a counterblast that flowed down the uneven flanks of the port like an avalanche, gathering roiling vapor and debris as it descended to smash into the first companies of auxiliaries, daring the lesser guns to the base. Bodies by the hundred were picked up and dragged through the crushing cloud of shell shrapnel and fire, cutting a swathe through those that followed. It was the single most powerful explosion Forrest had ever witnessed, and was yet the overture for the fusillade that was to follow. As the last after shimmer of the void shields dissipated, the cannons spoke again, this time accompanied by the hiss of 50,000 rockets and 20,000 missiles. This fresh wave of brutality smashed into the laboring shields just half a minute after the first. Purple and blue coruscated through the air a few hundred meters from the armored skin of the spaceport. Explosions racked its surface, hurling chunks of plate and showering burning rubble down its mountainous slopes. Not from impacts, but void shield generators that had torn themselves apart under the strain of resisting the gigatons of rage unleashed upon them. And again, the great guns of the Iron Warriors fired. And then I, I guess maybe moving on is, is describing, because it's sort of like a three-pronged attack, right? That they're going to be launching on Lionsgate Spaceport? Kroger's going to be launching. Remember, Perturabo has nothing to do with this. He's yeah, washing yeah. his hands. I'm assuming he's gonna fucking catch up on some Netflix. Yeah, like some 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 TV he hasn't watched for a while. Well, no, because yeah. Petrovo's connected to his massive wargaming table, isn't he? So <laughs> you know he's he's pushing all of his little models around and rolling some dice and trying to you know he's got a massive game of Risk underway. <laughs> Definitely. So I guess like the one of the, the the first attack that's coming in at the Lionsgate spaceport is uh, waves and waves and waves of their traitor militia uh, and army soldiers who are attacking. But the neat part I found about this, it's actually the most the, the most interesting one of the three attacks that carries throughout the book is the one that's led by uh, Frox, which is several thousand Marines intermixed with all of these people, with all yeah. of these uh, uh, a militia that are attacking to the South 
and they have a specific coordinate inside, you know, like a, a, a rallying point that they're all going to get to. And then it's uh, once they're once they're in, uh, it's just neat how all of these Marines like manage to make it through, slip through the gaps. But I guess the attack is gigantic that's going on at the beginning. Yeah, right? it's a, like they, they, they talk about all the artillery. Is it uh, uh, Volbron that talks about all the artillery that was that was massed? Um, they have yeah. like tens of thousands of artillery pieces that are like attacking the Eternity Gate. Um, so I've got I've, I've got some of the numbers here. I'm just oh, you got the numbers? Yeah, I've got. I'm, I'm, we're numbers. not going to go through all the numbers. Let's give you some examples. So. 25,000 Iron Warriors, for starters. That, that's a good <laughs> chunk of Legion. Uh, 1.5 million traitor army. Um, under Huge numbers of beastmen, cultists, mutants. They don't even count the numbers of those that get swarmed <laughs> in. Um, some of my particular favourites are 2,000 Basilisks. And I love the fact that they've only got 84 Typhons. Out of all these huge numbers, there's only 84 Typhons. Well, we all know why. That's a lot of Typhons. That's like, how much are Typhons? Like 600 points? That's a big army. Yeah, but it's also a fact they're a pain in the ass to build, isn't it? So that's why there's they only 84 of them. Plus, they're going to build a conversion kit for the Spartan kit. Like, it was just so, to be, but the book wasn't released when that came out. So, you know, per, per, poor Petrov has been up all night building those forger of models. He's, he's <laughs> given up after 84. He's got no enough. So, but going back to Mark's point about Ferox's uh, force, that's a thousand Astartes. Now, bearing in mind, a thousand Astartes is a standard 40k chapter. And in Siege of Terror, we talk about those as an infiltration force. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually brilliant the way that, because even Forex is kind of impressed that Kroger thought of this. Because um, the, the whole idea is it's pretty much my own. 30k army in that um uh for uh like kroger has uh um i guess he describes it as a shiv as opposed to a hammer you can use a hammer and do a lot of damage but like a shiv if you get it in the right place can do even more fucking damage and 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 all these astartes are like shivs so he he takes like a regiment of normal human you know militia or imperial army and you put one army more in there and the whole job is, it's like, it's like putting a virus into the system. Yeah. And you bring one iron warrior into the fucking, and eventually, uh, of course, the militia don't survive. It's a meat shield. Your meat, they literally call it meat shields. <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ, it's so horrible. Yeah. And, and But this is the thing, isn't it? That it, it, we've talked before about the Iron Warrior method of war is when it's just numbers. It's just statistics. And all this attack is designed to do is to allow Ferox to infiltrate Lionsgate. That's his yep. entire purpose. At no point is it actually designed to capture the port. No, it, it, it's it's to insert uh, Iron Warrior to just mess stuff up. There's no objective, too. That's the other thing that's... Um, that messes with uh, with the uh, the Imperial Fist because the Imperial Fists have been ordered. Oh, uh, Mark, um, uh, do, what, what's the Imperial Fists sort of strategy for defending uh, Lionsgate? Uh, who do we? Who do they send? Um, what what uh, what's his name again? Um, Frig. That's uh, uh, Braun or Far- that's Ran. They send it Ran. They send it Ran, the bearded fella. Didn't they yeah. make a model for him? They did. Okay, yeah, that's okay. That's because I wasn't sure at first. Because he, he, for some reason in my mind, when I visualize him, he doesn't look as imposing. 
as the model does. He looks kind. Of, he's kind of a. Weird he, I, I think the model is more mid Siege of Terror rather than early Siege of Terror. Let's say. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Be, yeah, because I'm, he I'm certainly only... becomes more prevalent. Okay. But it's important to remember that like Dorne is having to defend everywhere. The Imperial Palace is being attacked on all sides. Notably, the fucking Death Guard are very well encamped. And the Death Guard was starting constructing like epic. Remember old epic models? Yeah. Oh, do you know what? There are so many epic moments in this. When we talk about the um Imperial Fist counterattack of the of Lionsgate, when they when they blunt our oh, Kroger's short assault we'll talk about the amount of epic scale models that they are using in that because clearly gav thorpe wrote this gav thorpe was an old epic yes fan and writer and you can tell this you can tell that initial assault onto the lion's gate that's a massive epic game oh yeah for sure but what i love is like the the the, the beginning because it was always kind of silly that the that you know chaos could have like catapults and like all this shit but they explained it well why do why you have catapults? Well, because of how void shields work. Yeah. If you I just, mean, like, I catapult, mean, like, dead bodies, like, pox-written bodies into the Imperial Palace, uh, the void yeah. shield doesn't work. Only the slow blade passes through. Yeah. It's terrifying. So the, the Death Guard are attacking. Um, there's also the Emperor's Children are attacking in, in another front. So they're completely surrounded, and Dorn well, has to... Let's pause there with the Emperor's Children, because the Emperor's Children necessarily aren't attacking. They're just trying to secure prisoners. And it's really great that actually they describe this a little bit in the book, that the Loyalist forces are really confused that the Emperor's Children aren't pressing home, that they're just grabbing people and falling back. Yeah. And that's left completely open to the reader's imagination for good reasons. Yeah. <laughs> But so the idea is, for Dorn, um, he has to defend a lot of areas, and it's not obvious that Lion's Gate is going to be the main, um, the main attack. Again, uh, as as Mark was saying, um, uh, uh, it seems for him, it, it, it's almost obviously a diversion. Because why would you attack there? Um, but also. The Imperial Fist defense is very unusual because they don't actually defend the gates or they don't defend the starport. They actually move out beyond the starport to blunt the attack before it reaches it. But they also withdraw. Yeah, so they, they basically do it as a fighting retreat back yeah. inside, don't they? So they, they create the classic Imperial Fist shield wall and then they slowly move back inside the Stargate as they're being driven, driven back just by more sh- sheer weight and numbers. Um, but they, they, do they, they shell the shit out of the, uh, the militia attacking. Yeah. And what is helping them? Let's, let's now get into the kind of the epic side of things because the world eagles oh, yes! jump into this side, don't they? <laughs> this is where the world is like a massive advance. We can help with that. And Khan's involved, isn't he? Um, and the description of Khan. Oh, well, actually, point, okay. Before we do that, though, we have to talk about the meeting between Karn and Kroger because it's so important for the, the story yeah. going forward. And yeah. this is one of my favorite parts of the whole book, when you have a um, an Iron Warriors uh, land raider, which is trying to make its way through the uh, World Eaters lines, and it's just like it's utter like bedlam. It's 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 just a gore soaked mess, um, and, and and eventually he meets with the only fucking person in the fucking World Eaters Legion, 
that still has any sort of sanity uh, left in him, Karn. But he's described very differently, isn't he? He's massive now. He is completely swollen with warp power. Yeah, and yeah. he's but he's still kind of holding it together, right? Mm, yeah, he is. Yeah, he he's yeah. still the Khan we've grown to love over time. <laughs> yeah, he definitely is, right? Because like his muscles are like bursting out of his armor at points, um, and like he he's always thinking about the blood, but he's able to focus you know, just enough um, to help with this plan. But also he can see in uh, Kroger that he also has the blood God's blessing, right? Yeah. So he's more willing to help mm. this guy. Doesn't Khan punch through a rhino to demonstrate how strong he <laughs> is? Yes. Yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> he punches a rhino in half. It's like, yeah. oh, Kroger, uh, well, well, you know, this, it, it's, this is it's interesting. It's the world eats. Yeah, it's a world eater equivalent of smashing a beer can on your forehead, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, the, the, the whole idea is to create a... Because, again, the pro, the only reliable Legionnaires has, beyond his own, is the Iron Warriors. All the other Legions are kind of doing their own thing. So you have to negotiate with them to get them on board for an offensive. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, yeah, Kroger, like, convinces uh, Karn, like, you, look, we have a major offensive, uh, and I, I guess the trade-off is uh, for Karn. It's like you should, uh, I don't know, uh, consider the Blood God. But I, I love the way he describes this um, because a lot of the Aryan warriors are kind of falling to different powers. Uh, um, I think Vol- um, uh, the, the Stone Rot. Uh, he's starting to feel the um, the draw of Slanesh, for example. Uh, yeah, isn't he just calling himself a warsmith? He refuses to be acknowledged as anything else, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> but for Kroger, it's just like, okay, so what do I need to do for this god? It's like, you don't need to do anything. You just need to kill. You need to kill things. Well, that seems... Do I need to worship? It's like, no. You worship by by fighting. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to pray. Corn cares not for all this nonsense. It's like, well, that seems like a pretty rad god. I don't need to do anything. It's like, no, you don't need to do anything. It's like, I'm on board. It's the first one is free, isn't it? Pretty much. Yeah, the first one is free. (laughs) But I like it because this is something that other authors have picked up, particularly ADB has picked out, is that the path to chaos isn't a huge, massive decision one day. It's that small steps along the journey until you suddenly realise you're on that path to glory or more frequently damnation. And I think this is a good example of that where... Kruger has just clearly signed up and come. He's claimed himself now as a follower of um, Corn, without really understanding what that involves. It's a metaphor for addiction, right? It's pretty much yeah. what it is. Yeah, Kroger's like, ah, yeah, that'll do. I just need your help for the offensive, and uh, Karn is more than happy to help. So yeah, so going back to uh, what uh, what you were saying, Darren, massive offensive against uh the like the base of the wall and then what comes out like of these giant like i I can imagine these 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 kilometer high hangers what comes out like three (laughs) like epic scale like no no there's six there's There's six yeah there's three capital imperialis and there's three leviathans jesus those of you who don't remember Epic from the 90s and remember these kits. For Capital Imperialis in Epic scale was still a good 10 centimetres long. It was made of 
metal as well, wasn't it? It was white metal. It, you could kill someone if it was put into a sock. Oh, and yeah. this was huge. I mean, okay, to put it into kind of scales, it was at least three Bane blades long and <laughs> as tall as a warlord. Yeah, it was this giant and, chunky thing, eh? Yeah, and then the Leviathan was about half of that size. So you know, the, these are considerably large pieces of equipment. Um, and the Imperium seems to have quite a lot in the Imperial Palace because a capital Imperialis later turns up in Fury of Magnus as well. I'm not going to give any spoilers what happens there, but, you know, we have four mentioned. Jeez. So you would have thought with six epic scale vehicles like that, things would go quite well for loyalists and they do help to blunt the traitor attack. But someone decides to get involved, doesn't don't they? Freaking Angron. Yes. Just like crashes into one and starts tearing it up from the inside out. Yeah. Oh boy, Angron. He has so much fun in Siege of Terror, doesn't it? Out of all the Primarchs, this is Angron's moment, isn't it? He shows up for like five minutes in this book and it's like one of the best parts. <laughs> he tears one apart and then the other ones withdraws like fuck this i am not dealing with with angron yeah. they withdraw yeah. back into like the hangers but angron can't go any further uh karn had convinced him to join the offensive right uh and but the problem is because of the emperor's psychic ward because of the uh, of the emperor's shield um angron can't go any further he can't actually attack into the spaceport so He's just like impotently like bashing at the shield and then he, he gets bored and leaves. Yeah. It's like a giant King Kong moment. It's he's battering against this wall and goes, well, I can't ah, do anything. Fuck I'll this. Leave. There's <laughs> someone I can murder elsewhere. I'm off. But the, uh, the, 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 the long-term objective of, of inserting Iron Warriors into the, um, the spaceport is successful. Yeah. The virus is implanted. So what's the next phase? Um, well, should we talk about, do, do we want to mention the council? Because the council yes. on, the, on the Vengeful Spirit takes place quite soon after this, don't they? Because some of the other traitor primarchs are saying that this attack was a complete failure. And Per Trabo needs to put his argument across, aren't they? And during this, so this is the second council we've seen having on the Vengeful Spirit. Um, most of the primarchs are there. Apart from Angron, because he's too busy smashing stuff up elsewhere. He's like, he's no, doing his can't, thing. Yeah, I can't talk. Too busy. Smash. But all the others are there, aren't they? So quite with it, isn't he? Oh, he's clearly completely swelling with the powers of chaos. Um, he's a little bit distracted because he seems to be half engaged with a warp all the time. Um, but he's still clearly leading the traitor forces. Well, what do you think of, I do think there's an interesting dynamic of that both Horse and the Emperor, you don't really see them in this book. And, and for personally, most of the, the, the series. Yeah, personally, I like it because I think we've got to beyond the point now where they can be viewpoint characters. I, I think they're much better being described by outsiders describing what they're doing or not doing or how they seem to be reacting rather than having an in-depth look at what they're actually doing. I think it's much more powerful, that off-scene mm-hmm. kind of element of them. Yeah, because I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Darren, JP. It's 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 more interesting to be wondering what they're doing. Like in um, the Solar War, we had a lot more of that, 
with Horus and the Emperor, which was very neat, sort of a setup for what's happening. But now it's sort of, you know, they're just sort of there doing their thing while everyone else is doing all the, you know, doing all the work, quote unquote, right? And let's face it, it's per tribe doing the majority of work. In fact, he really lays into the other Primarchs, doesn't he, about the fact yeah. they're doing nothing. He's the only one that's not corrupted at, the, at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, corrupted, like, you know, he's not a demon Primarch at this point. He becomes a demon Primarch later. So he's trying and, to, like, he's trying to win a conventional war. But he also yeah. understands that... Sorry. I was going to say, and he points out the reason they're not being as successful as he suggests they should be is because of the Emperor's shield. And his argument is the demon Primarchs should be more doing more in the war. It's a weapon. It's an actual down. weapon that we could be using we can't use. So what's the plan they come up with then? Because we also have a couple of characters that come back into this world that we haven't seen for a while. Well, there's a conclave, right? They decide to do a conclave. So we have Abaddon turned back up because we've seen in the Siege of Terror series that Abaddon is very much becoming much at the forefront of the Legion. But we also have Zadu Leia. And he's very much kind of advising isn't he he's advising the warp fuckery business to everyone other than horus basically because horus is fully aware of what's going on with, with well, all, horus kind of considers of them uh his right and left hand or arm who's already no, there? It's, yeah yeah yes yeah, right left hand isn't it and because because he can't rely on the traitor primarchs horus gives laic and abaddon he loans them out doesn't he to perturabo Kind of, yeah. like, <laughs> use these off you go <laughs> he's basically playing in the card game he's playing those cards and Mortarian to be fair agrees to send Typhus because you, you know Mortarian can easily control Typhus and tell him what to do yeah exactly so and they have they have a meeting sorry I was going to say and, and their plan is to start summoning Neverborn isn't it that's their entire idea Start. they realise that one of the ways they can start to weaken the shield is by summoning more Neverborn onto terror particularly one it's really nice this because they start they really want to summon uh callback satterblight which is one of the four-year-old models and it's one of the nice things we've had in some of the later heresy novels isn't it where we start to see those four-year-old models start to be referenced more in the book and he's just as useful as samus is <laughs> well you know kind of i mean he, he he's helping the process right Samus did actually wind up being pretty fucking cool in Solar War. It was the first time that he didn't get killed off screen. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, they have like a conclave. So they all go down. Perturabo gets to watch. Um, so you have uh, Zardu, Abaddon, Typhus. And, and this is on the planet. This is like a ruined, like it's a ruined like barracks, right? Isn't it the tower that's mentioned in Lost and Madame? The one that's blown up towards the end? Is it really? I didn't catch that at all. It might uh, be. I'd have, I'd have, I need to double check. Yeah, I'm not sure. Because, they, well, they do, like, because Lost and the Damned, uh, I'm looking at the map where it takes place and where they are. So may, maybe. I'm not sure. But either but way, way it, it, it's, some, it's some old fucking, like, bombed out bunker. Yeah, they take advantage of Well, it's because... Many have died there. It's like piles of bodies. It's like yeah. why are why are we meeting here? And then Lyak starts uh, he starts playing with entrails and like taking like intestines out of like some of the dead. And, and through his rituals, some of like those intestines they like, start growing teeth and they become like bugs and they start like immediately going to like hang out with typhus. 
Yeah. Um, so there's like a, a whole ritual. The what's really uh, he he pulls light pulls the heart out of one of the corpses, and the heart starts beating again, but starts beating um, uh, with the same rhythm as Abaddon's heart, which tells you a lot, right? Yeah. I, I, this is one of the things that Typhus keeps saying to Abaddon all the time that the, the gods have a plan for him, don't they? And this is this is a theme that kind of goes through Abaddon a lot in the Siege of Terror novels, and we're going to particularly look at when we talk about Saturnine in, in a couple of shows' time <laughs> in the Siege of Terror specials, anyway. Um, that Laic is really setting Abaddon up and putting those thought processes in that the gods are watching him, that he's got a key role to play. But the whole idea is that through this ritual, because you can't just bring in the Neverborn, but there are Neverborn, which are closer to the physical realm, like Samus. Uh, they're called the uh, uh, the Heralds of the Runestorm. Yes. They're, they're closer to the physical realm. So it's possible to bring them in uh, because they have like some kind of anchor in the physical world, if I understood correctly. Did I understand? Did I understand that? Yes, and um, because it's more about the emotions they entail. So the reason they're going for Core Black's utter blight is because it infiltrates the hearts and minds of the people mm. in the palace. That rather than physically manifesting, it's manifesting emotions, which we know is what powers the warp in the first place. So you've got this psychological impact, very similar to what we saw in Lost and Damned when the Death Guard dropped about the emotional yes. impact they had on the um, defenders in that in that book. So we're starting to see how the traitor forces are using the emotions of the Neverborn that they are created from to kind of feed back and influence the emotions of the defenders. But they're not the only people to be playing around with faith and religion, are they? Oh, we're bringing that story in. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, That's Mark, uh, Mark, uh, your, your boy uh, is trying to uh, deal with the situation. Yeah, because there's the whole there's the whole storyline going in on the inside, because on top of the 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 attack on the spaceport, I mean, there's all the disease and corruption. And like, I think, you know, it's almost like zombies at one point, too. Um, well, at the very end, yeah, they, they totally zombified. Like yeah, well, with, with everyone that's going on, too. And the, well, the there, there's what? a whole like segment of the Imperial Palace which is called Poxville. Yeah, it's called what is it? What is it? The uh, it's not the Petitioner City. It's like the the Pious. No, I think it. I think it's a Petitioner City, isn't it? Yeah, which is mostly militia with a few Blood Angels supporting them. But yeah, uh, one of the main characters from Lost in the Dam, Katsuhiro, is doing guard duty, shooting down <laughs> anybody that tries to escape. Uh, from this Pox City where they're dumping everybody that gets plague from Mortarion's Legion. It's a it's a terrifying story. This is a this is dark. Yeah, it's just a, it's it'd be like a living nightmare to be in there with all this because there's there's people trying to help you, but there's really not much that anyone can do. That's the Black um, Death. Well, exactly. Yeah, too. And I mean, like this is spreading more fear, and it's it's causing more of the people to start to turn. To look to this faith, right? To to look for the uh, uh, what, uh, what is Leticio uh, Divinatus? Yes, yeah, it is. I've said that word out loud. <laughs> and it, but you've also got on a, on a military standpoint the idea that you've got now so many of the Imperial Army regiments are starting to mix together. You haven't got those clear lines between different regiments now. You you've got that amalgamation starting to go on. So uh, you have one of the uh, 
custodies essentially has been given the job. What's his name? Uh, Amon? It's Amon. Amon, yeah. He gets uh, the job to try to investigate what the hell is going on with all these, you know, theists. And uh, but- he, he gets led to returning champion Euphrates Keeler. And kills Cinderman, don't forget Cinderman. And Cinderman, yeah. You like, can't forget Cinderman. Back to uh, back to the first book. Which is it, a nice and this touch. is a really nice link. Yeah, absolutely. This is a really nice link. because It's been quite a while since we've come across Keeler and Cinderman, isn't it? Because um, Keeler was actually in the prison, wasn't she? The Blackstone prison. Yeah, she was there with uh, Mercedes uh, Odalon, who turned out to be... <laughs> How they got to, how they got Samus onto the phalanx, uh, but yeah, she was she was quite imprisoned. But uh, they let her out. But this is one of the interesting things, and this is one of the things I really like because it links really nicely back into some of the old law that Malkador effectively wants to experiment, doesn't he? He wants to play around with the Imperial cult. He's starting to realize that if the Chaos Gods are empowering Chaos, or is, if Chaos is empowering Chaos Gods. Will the Imperial cult empower the Emperor? So we're starting to touch on our old Lost in the Damned Realm of Chaos law book, which is suggested that the Emperor is one of the Chaos Pantheon to a degree. And he feel and and the emotions of the Imperial cult do empower him. So I, I really liked this. I really liked this storyline because it brought in a lot of those older lore about how it all fits together, how the warp actually functions. But Malkador is still hedging his bets, isn't he? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he, he's not going to throw away a potential weapon, so why not test this out, see what happens with, with, all, of these, uh, with all of these people? Because, I mean, how many people are in the palace? Like, there's got to be, like, hundreds of billions of people, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and more every day, yeah. Pro- easily a billion people are in the, the palace at this point. It's huge. But- it's a continent-sized fortress. But the custodians, and particularly Amon, is not ha- happy with this plan. <laughs> well, yeah, he's doing, like... Well, he's been asked to do pretty much, like... Do, like, detective work. The, 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 his storyline is really kind of like a detective storyline. It's like, oh, we found this cult. Like, oh, what do they call the light bearers? Yes, yeah, light bearers. And, uh, yeah, the... So, yeah, this, like imperial cult and uh, they worship the emperor and it, it doesn't feel like it goes very far till it does and then it's like oh shit this is cool yeah it, yeah this you know what I mean? it's one of those odd little storylines isn't it that when it pops up it's an interesting read but actually what you want to do be going getting back to is the lion's gate you want to be finding out how the iron warriors are doing and what what's going on there it's it's not till we get to towards the end of the novel where everything starts to fit together into the end point do we actually realize how significant this storyline is yeah so let's go back okay so uh the main attack has been the the first attack was um at the lower uh part of the starport one of the main objectives besides making dorn waste ammunition and you know just to feel your way into it one of the major major points was to a smuggle, if you will, about a thousand Iron Warriors into a uh, spaceport to just kind of like you know cause cause damage. There's a secondary attack that happens. Is this? Uh, are we talking about the one that's coming in from the top down? Yeah, 
or the 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 because the the one from the top down it's pretty much like a static like a a, a normal sort of assault right i mean you've yeah, got it's a uh, drop assault who's the uh, that, that one's kroger isn't it it's kroger again but he's backed up by abaddon layak khan yeah. again khan good old um and barosis which is actually from um some 40k novels as well which is so that's a nice oh. treat to the future there's also another thing that's happening at the same time is that our, 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 the first obliterator, yeah, Volk <laughs> obliterator. is uh, is also doing something at the same time. Another part of this assault, um, uh, he's been um, talking with the Dark Mechanicum, right, and and, and learning the, the the secrets, and he's been plugging himself into like the defense system. Yeah, he's introducing scrap code, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, causing and, all kinds of problems, right, for the defenders. Yeah, mostly shutting down surveillance systems. So he's shutting down all the internal cameras. So yeah, that's exactly that's how the uh, the uh, again those two um, sneaking in like the shiv of the Iron Warriors I- into uh, the spaceport. That's part of the same offensive as Volk messing with like like the surveillance system and everything like that. I said he's he's shutting down all the CCTV. He's shutting down all the TVs. All yeah. <laughs> it's all static. It's all snow. Okay. I, one thing though, I thought Karn came in a different way. Like I thought he he attacked sort of mid mid tower. Or am I just not remembering this right? I think they're hitting several points because what happens because um, Volk is shutting down the cameras, Dawn pulls troops down from the upper levels because he realizes that there's that they've been infiltrated. So as soon as he pulls troops away from the upper layers, that's when Kroger. Abaddon, Khan, all launched their assaults, and I think they hit mm. at different locations once again to spread the defenders more thinly. Yeah, because like uh, Karn and them come in in boarding torpedoes in the atmosphere, I believe. Yes, yes, that's, yeah, that's right. Such yeah. a wor- that's such a worldy to moment again, isn't it? <laughs> Definitely is. <laughs> and it's also oh. one for a few mentions we've had of Conqueror since Solar War as well, because they they've once obviously launched the World Eaters because. Who else is going to launch World Eaters from boarding torpedoes other than their own flagship? Hell yeah. Nobody rushed to conquer. Yeah, so it's it's kind of from that point, it's kind of like this sort of spiraling down conflict that's happening in the upper levels. With like, there's there's not much really of a counterattack till, till later on in the book because Dorn's like, do not let them take the sky bridges. Yeah, so that's really Dawn's main focus in the second part of the book, isn't he? So these sky bridges are the areas that connect the Lionsgate starport to the main walls, aren't they? So you do get the impression the Lionsgate is slightly detached from the walls, is the impression I got. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, kind of. Kind of like maybe just like loosely attached. And then, yeah, you've got these maps. Because I'm looking at the picture here and I'm wondering if the sky bridges are the ones that lead right to the Lionsgate itself. Yes, I think they are looking at the map because I've, I've got my copy of the map in front of me as well. So yeah, I think you are right. And obviously, those are a weak area, aren't they? Because if the sky, if the traitors capture the sky bridges, they've got an easier route into the Lion's Gate. Yeah, yeah. and you can bring your Titans down. Yeah, I guess one of the other things we should point out too is the fighting that's going on in the upper levels as they're spiraling down this conflict. Is they don't use really any uh, militia forces because of the you know you can't have people fighting up in the troposphere, right? Or the stratosphere. <laughs> well, yeah, they're basically it's void war 
almost, isn't it? They were having to use false sealed armor. You know, it's it's that kind of really toxic environment. So you can't use militia because they'll suffocate badly. Yeah, exactly. So they're mostly being used inside to try and stop uh, a Forex's attack. Uh, which the one thing I found really neat is, like JP said, you guys said earlier that they have no uh, specific objectives, so they let the defenders pick the objectives for them by learning where they're going. Oh, this is a critical place where they're defending. Let's go there. Oh, this is another critical place. Let's go there. And that's how they're sort of fighting their way around inside the starport. Yeah, where are the imperial fists? They're gonna they're gonna defend the most important areas, and you don't know what the most important areas are. It's going to be where the Imperial Fists are. <laughs> but they're not having a great time, are they? Those other no, warriors. No, no. They, they are really getting worn out. And I think this is actually, for me, one of the best things about the book. We know the Iron Warriors are great in traditional warfare. You know, it, it's been their main theme since they were first created. But this is taking it to extremes, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, they're they're basically being constantly pressed on all sides having to fight their way out of ambushes. They're doing like counter ambushes. You know, they're the Imperium's even using their own uh, uh, solar auxilia and like militia forces as fodder to try and like stem the tide of them. And they last down there for quite a while. Like like nine days? No, no, it's like 22 days, I think. Jeez. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a lot longer. I, one of my particular favorites, and I did make a note of it, is where there's a wounded eye, a wounded iron warrior. Yes, and he's talking to Forex, and the iron warrior refuses to sit down. And Forex says that he will be a lieutenant when the mission is over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and immediately afterwards, uh, he starts talking. It's like, okay, we we have to leave the wounded. Yeah, um, and and he's talking. I don't remember uh, uh, who Forex is talking to. Like one of his uh, one of his uh, colleagues that we have. Yeah. It's- Gar- yeah, gar- yeah. Gar- yeah, we have to we have to leave the wounded because um, we, we can't we have to keep moving or else we're all we're all dead. So we have to leave the wounded. It's, it's, should we finish them off ourselves? It's like, no. <laughs> are you comfortable doing that? No, like we're not doing that. The Iron Warriors are still. And I, I would maintain even in 40K, the Iron Warriors are still a Space Marine Legion as opposed to like the World Eaters. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the key things we see throughout this, isn't it? That the Iron Warriors are still functioning as the same Legion as they were seven years previously. Yeah. That is fun. You know, they've still got their logistics. They've still got a clear chain of command. They are still using conventional tactics. And to be honest, at this stage, they're pretty much the only Trace Legion that is still doing that. Pretty yeah, much. Like, like, maybe there's, like, the Sons of Horus, if they get stuck. And I'm not sure if they get stuck in more later on. Um, yet, but yeah, the sons of Horus are starting to break down those war bands a little bit more. They're, they're mm. kind of functioning around one strong leader. When they get into a fight, they are still functioning as a legion, but they are breaking down their organization a lot more. It's it's almost like he uh, more t- uh, sorry, Pertorabo only has a few people he can rely on, and they're not even the leaders of the legion. Like maybe Mortarian a little bit at this stage. Because they seem to be okay doing, you know, continuing the assault, but nowhere near what he needs. Like, Mortarian is, is the only one that's actually fulfilling his orders, besides Pedraba. Like, mm-hmm. he's doing, he's actually attacking the walls. He's doing it in a horrible way, but he's actually doing something. Yeah, it's like we said earlier, you know, Fulgrim's just going around capturing people. Angron's like, oh, the fight's done here. I'll go a few miles up the wall. Oh, there's a fight over here and just continue on, right? Yeah, and Lorgar's been exiled, so. 
but there are um, world eater there are word bearers there but they're actually under the authority of Horus. Yeah. yeah. So Man, could have been useful. Just want to fucking throw that out there, but Jesus Christ, if Lorgar, if Lorgar was like present here, could he have tipped the balance, you think? Well, Lorgar would have had more mastery over the warp and knowledge of and knowledge of the warp and the Neverborn. So you would have had a lot more influence on that aspect, which could have freed Horus up a little bit more. So you could have had Lorgar and Magnus combined weakening the Emperor's shield and yeah. weakening the Emperor psychically, which could allow Horus to rampage more himself. So you could have had a much more active Horus engaged in the siege. This would have been huge, I think, if uh, if Lorgar were there, but he's not. So what are you going to do? Yeah, that sounds like a good what if. Yeah, this is a what if. Almost like an alternative heresy. Almost, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So you have a, a mass attack on uh, on the t- again, the spaceport is a space elevator. It is a giant tube that goes all the way into into space where you can actually dock. You have a mass attack there. You have a mass attack at the bottom. You have iron warriors inside uh, the, the the spaceport that has been like smuggled in. And this is Kroger's plan. It's going, I guess, okay, but not fantastic. Uh, so so so, well, what makes it decisive? It's an odd one, isn't it? Because effectively his plan is working because Forex's infiltration group yeah. are drawing off reinforcements which have allowed the traitors to effectively capture the top parts of the tower or at least engage in fighting throughout the starport. Well, the, the, that's the whole thing. It's Kroger is not thinking that rationally. He's really uh, thinking of skulls and blood. He's left a huge weakness in his line. And Dorn has noticed it. Which Dorn would, you know, you, you, well, you yeah. would hope that you would hope a Primarch would spot. And, and Dorn thinks it's a trap. It's like this is too obvious because he still thinks he's fighting Perdurov. He's not fighting Perdurov. He's fighting Kroger. But he does decide to send reinforcements, doesn't he? Yeah. So, um, so what happens? What, what are these reinforcements? Well, it's we need Sigismund, to step back a second. It? Yeah, it's Sigismund, Sigismund, and a whole bunch more Imperial fists. <laughs> the good the good old boy who's fighting i i assume well i'll just say this right now i assume later on in other books he's going to be fighting a lot more people because he gets into you know an interesting fight in this one for sure uh yeah warhawk is sigismund's moment let's say that nice. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we will discuss that in depth a lot when we get but to there's another big yes. part of there's another big part of uh, of this counterattack, which is um uh dorn has been mustering a uh, huge elements of the Imperial Army just outside that can be thrown into the attack at any time. Yes. And and so, it's all under cover of a, uh, I guess, like the equivalent of like, what's those Eldar, what are those Eldar shields? Hollowfields. They're kind of under a hollow field. Yeah. Yes. Because this is the other storyline that's going on, right? And this storyline starts uh, before... Uh, I'm, I'm just wondering exactly, because it's like what... Uh, a few hundred days, or is it a uh, hundred and something? They, this start the story story storyline starts off before the siege has actually like happened on uh, on Terra. Like, there's no fighting going on yet on the planet, and we're following a bunch of people from uh, which where are they from exactly? It's Afrique, isn't it? It's it's one of the Afrique hives. Um, yes, Abada, Ababa, yeah, Abada, Abada, Yeah. And these people are basically, you know, they've been 
they're, they're part of the Imperial militia now. And it's discussing them going to this staging point, like basically their yeah. travels. And it's basically sort of catching up to the main story as it goes. Yeah, and this is a really nice storyline because it, it really brings out a couple of things, doesn't it? One, it brings out the idea that the entire planet is being mobilised. It's not just the area of the Imperial Palace. The Siege of Terror is terror-wide. Um, but it's also because Ababa Hive is an interesting one because it was it fought against the Emperor in the Unification Wars and it's forced, and it's forced into compliance. That should have been a big tip-off, right? right? Right from the beginning. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I think we're lulled into a trap because most of Terror resists the Emperor in the Unification Wars. Oh, yeah. That's because true. That's true. It, that story also then continues about how they're brought in compliance and then they're loyal subjects and then they're following everything that the Imperium is asking them to but do. But they're also living lives, like horrible lives. This is like uh, fucking 1820s Manchester. They talk about children don't have to work 16-hour days. Uh, they have to work fourteen-hour days. Like that's that's yeah. horrible. <laughs> I've never seen like yeah, like the, the main character, right? Like she's only ever seen the sun like once or twice in her fucking life. These are horrible, horrible lives. Uh, and 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 for the Amber, because they're just pumping out tanks. Well, they were doing like agricultural stuff, but then they like shift to tank uh, to, to tank production. Because one of the things too is interesting is as they're moving from place to place, and when they get onto the trains. And they're describing, you know, how cramped it is. But when she looks at it and looks back at where she was before, it was actually very spacious. But like people are being crammed into these train cars. Yeah. And it just shows how horrible their life was before. Like, but they're yeah. also being attacked, aren't they? So they're attacked by Astartes at the depot. Yeah. Yeah. Don't they also have, they're also strafed at one point as well, aren't they? The train gets like derailed at a certain point. Yeah. It gets, it gets knocked out on the way too because. There's a lot of people headed in this direction, right? Um, yeah, well, everybody's mustering at the at the palace. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk, like, once again, too, like, uh, oh, they introduced the, what are they called? And um, what do they call them in this book? Not the commissaries, but. Uh, they're not discipline masters. But I know what you mean. No, they have, a, they have a name for it. What is it? It's a great name for the commissars, but they're not commissars. Shit. Integrity officers. That's it. Yeah, the integrity officers. Integrity officers. That's that's not a logic term, is it? Yeah. Who literally are basically there to make sure everybody fights and everybody dies fighting and to weed out anybody who might be a traitor in their midst, right? Who, who might have traitorous sentiment. But from what happens with these guys, the, these, these, um, these officers is that they, they get rid of the people who are, you know, uh, started to follow the Imperial, uh, Leticio Devant. Yeah, the Imperial Nazis, cult. Right? So yeah. they're, they're basically killing the loyalists as they go. <laughs> and at a one we, point, there's like a mass execution. Yeah. yeah. They, they, they literally, like, they, 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 they pull people out that are, because again, the Imperial cult is prohibited by the Imperium. So they're they're dragging them out and sl- uh, slitting their throats and putting them in, in like a, a mass grave. It's it's, I mean it's haunting. It's a it's a this is a terrifying story. And yeah. and Zenobi, she's trying to figure out like where does she stand in this? Oh, an important part. Zenobi has been um has been tasked by her clan by her like family to carry the banner um of 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 her people. 
of 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 what what by now it used to be several like divisions but like because of all the casualties it's been kind of merged into one core the abadi free core so she has to carry but, but the banner hasn't been unfurled yet no and that's and that's significant isn't it they say they can't unfurl the banner until the correct time until the right exactly they're about to engage so they're they're and she's like torn because you know some of her friends they're obviously traitors uh, to the cause yeah, so she has to wrap some are, of them out, right? Yeah, and there are a few times when she's tempted to unfurl it, but she thinks, yeah. no, this is not the time. This is not, not the time. time. So eventually they make their way. Uh, so they're, they've been under air attack. Uh, the train is wrecked, uh, I think, around um, Djibouti. They, they kind of tell you roughly where things are. All right, so they have to yeah. march most of the way. And then a tank column comes along, and uh, they manage to, to convince the tankers to uh, let them, like, sort of, you know, tank ride the rest of the way. Because that great, goes well. Great detail, though. Great detail is just like, if if there's any combat, you get off right away because you will immediately die. Tank riding is very dangerous. It's called tank we descent. Also, we also saw this in Lost of the Damned. We also see it in the um, Poxblight sections of this novel that the descriptions of the mortal combat, the militia fighting, are really well done. You can see where they're using those historical examples and just kind of transferring them forward. So we do get that element of tankers in combat want infantry near them as support, but not on tank, get off a tank. So uh, Zenobi starts a relationship with uh, one of the tankers. And, um, you know, again, these people are probably going to, everybody knows that they're probably going to die on the walls. But, you know, like you're dedicated to the cause. Um, and they eventually get to the muster point. And th- this is what we were talking about before with what's essentially a hollow field. There is a, yeah. a, like an area that's like um, uh, um, uh, hidden from uh, enemy, uh, enemy observation, from observation from the, uh, the War Masters forces. So Dorn is preparing a massive counteroffensive using uh, Imperial Army elements. And this, 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 will, this will deal with the whole problem. Yeah, and in a way, he's had to, hasn't he? Because he knew he knew the the traitor forces had to focus on the imperial palace. They have the, the only reason they're here is to kill the emperor, and we've had this multiple times throughout the series of books. That the only reason the traitors want to capture Terror is to kill the emperor, because Horus needs to kill the emperor in order to be successful in his campaign. So, with the traitors so focused on the imperial palace. Dawn has that opportunity to create pockets of reinforcements elsewhere on the planet ready to reinforce because we don't get much, apart from the um, Empress children, we don't really get much description of traitor forces landing elsewhere on Terra. Yeah, because you have this, like you guys were saying, you have this whole planet of people that you can muster to your defense, right? Where the traitors kind of have to keep their focus on, you know, this one area they can't go out and like dump people at this hive or counterattack people at this place so they're very focused on the task and well f- like focused i guess as much as chaos can be focused on something but uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's solid <laughs> at least they're focused in this general vicinity we'll, we'll say that and then yeah we get uh this awesome thing that happens with these people okay so <laughs> Let's bring the storylines together. Right now, you have a situation where Kroger's offensive. Um, he's managed to get a thousand 
Iron Warriors Legionaries into the spaceport. Massive assault um, on the actual like landing uh, pads at the very top. Um, we're talking about like an, an offensive that includes like Abaddon, Karn, sorry, Lyak. You're gonna be okay. But Dorn still has that plan. Like, just if he he commits th- these Imperial Army forces, he can cut everybody off. So at that point, the Abada Free Corps steps forward, and it's time to go into action. And what happens? Egwu brought them together to dress the entire corps. A couple of armored command transports had been liberated from one of the other formations, and it was from atop one of these that the general captain spoke, voice amplified by the Vox transmitters below. Now was the day of our first and last test. Rogel Dorn has sent word for the reserve force to advance on the Lionsgate spaceport. It is sorely contested. The strength of the Imperial Fists and their allies matched against the might of the Iron Warriors and their supporters. She paced along the roof of the vehicle, baton in hand. The timing of the attack will be crucial, I've been told. This force, this mechanized column, will arrive along an axis that will turn the flank of the Warmaster's forces. A counterattack from within the palace will be mounted as the blow from this army falls, catching the Iron Warriors unawares. She stopped her walking and took the baton in both hands, staring down at the ranked squads of her companies. Lord Dorn has impressed upon the command staff the necessity of this attack. It is the engagement for which he has been waiting, one to which we have been delivered by fate to witness. The position of the Emperor's forces will be untenable if this attack fails. I do not need to tell you how happy this makes me. This is the battle that our cause is needed. This is the opportunity to prove ourselves that we have wanted for seven years. Some of you will be detailed with special operational preparations. The remainder of the Free Corps will stand ready for my commands. She bowed her head and her voice was barely audible, even over the Vox Meters. Soon, the effort and sacrifice and blood we have shed will be made worthy. The companies were dismissed and a tense quiet descended on their encampment, pregnant with expectation. These last hours were the worst for Zenobi, far more excruciating than the weeks and months that had come before. To be so close, and yet not quite at their goal, made every minute pass with torturous slowness. By midday, the reserve force was almost ready to move out. A few scouting companies had been dispatched already to provide reconnaissance on the route to the Imperial Palace. The Free Corps made their way to the main highway, bringing their new last cannons, heavy bolters, mortars, and other weapons with them. Running the length of the enclosed base, a viaduct gave them a vantage point that looked out across the regiments both historic and newly raised. Zenobi and the first squad received a call to attend to Egwu. She started shaking as they marched along the road to the head of the column. Memories flocked for attention, of family and friends, time spent on the line, and the experiences she'd had since leaving Adava. All of it crammed into her thoughts, bringing her to that time and place. So much labor, so much loss, all in the name of the Emperor. It was this thought she held onto as she clambered to the top of the command vehicle, assisted by Member and Kitai. Egwu waited there, Jawahir alongside. The integrity high officer spared a brief smile from the stand bearer, and with a flick of a finger, directed her to place herself next to the general captain. The smog of hundreds of engines, black in the sky, adding to the gloom of the filth-choked heavens. The thunder of tanks and transports, some the size of city blocks, created a deafening wave of sound that reverberated from the mountainsides, an assault on ears already numbed by the winds of the high Himalaysia. 
The growl of machine voices all but drowned out human shouts, even those amplified by vox meters. Electronic clarions howled into the world of noise, astounding the advancer stand too, their modulated calls overlapping. Everything was sudden movement, dust billowing from treads and boots alike. This is it. General Captain Egwu did not raise her voice, but her words were carried by the tongues of those under her command. Everyone, stand ready. Beside her, Zenobi Adadaji fidgeted with the cover of the banner she carried, eyes flicking between her company commander and a scene of organized bedlam being enacted around the troopers from Adaba Hive. Everything we have done, the oaths we have sworn, the hardships we have endured has led to this moment. Now, Egwu shouted, not simply to be heard, but filled with passion. Her remaining eyes stared wide amongst the burn scars that covered most of her face, fresh tissue pink against her dark skin. Now is the time we strike at the enemy. Our families labored and died to deliver us to this place. Our courage and determination has carried us this far. We may not live beyond this day, but our deeds will. Now, Asinobi, her voice quivering with emotion, a shaking hand reaching towards the cover of the standard. Yes, said the Captain General. Now. The cover fluttered from Zenobi's grasp, and the banner unfurled as she waved the pole, greeted by a roar from the troopers arrayed along the roadway. The Voxmitter picked up her cry as the cloth strained to reveal a red flag, a black stylized eye embroidered upon it, the names of thousands of Adaba families stitched in long lines beneath. For freedom! For Adaba! She shouted as the last fire ripped into life around her. A series of sharp detonations echoed across the base, plumes of yellow fire erupting within the tank columns and artillery batteries from demolition charges concealed that morning. For the War Master! Well, she unfurls the banner, doesn't she? Well, first of all, there's explosions within the camp, isn't there? Within the muster point, suddenly <laughs> tanks start going up left, right and centre. And you start, you start to think, well, what's going on? Well, why? Why is this happening? And then she pulls off the cover. She unfurls a flag. And what's on the flag? The motherfucking eye of horse. <laughs> and, you, and the chapter just ends and it's one of these things you have to go back and read a couple of times like, did I just read that right and the chapter ends with just the classic line for the, for war, the war master, master. <laughs> yeah <laughs> which was just fantastic too like like you just said Darren yeah I had to go back and read I'm like am I reading this right what the hell did I what what hey hang on <laughs> it's so good yeah and, and this there, there's no help coming from any of these people too uh, which is fantastic, and it's a good it's a good callback to um, to the old Bill King story where they talk about the Imperial Fort, like the Imperial Regular Army tearing itself apart uh, on on uh, on Terra while the the whole siege is going on. So I love that little callback. Yeah, yeah, it, it was one of those things that you look back on again and go, "This was very clever." Because when it happened, it's just like you had no clue. But when you look back at it with with hindsight, and you look back through those sections, you can see, of course where they're killing followers of Vipticia Divinitatus. We've been used to that from other loyalist forces, but now they put a different meaning onto it. When they're strafed by an aircraft, well, is that strafed no, by... No, but the, the brilliant bit is that uh, I reread it, and I was like, yeah, it seems obvious now, but I didn't... I didn't I did not guess at all because that's how shitty the Imperials, uh, the Imperium uh, yeah. is, right? Yeah. <laughs> like you can imagine, Absolutely. like when they're starting to execute people, like slitting their throats and putting them in a mass grave, it's just like, yeah, the Imperium does that. It's, it's like, really that's really how shitty this yeah. universe yeah. is. I never <laughs> guessed it was the bad guys. Yeah. 
And, How good was that, though? How fucking well. good was that? Yeah, and the officers. It's like, well, yeah, they're, they're like commissars. We're used to this. Oh, yeah. We're used to commissars. Yeah. Man, they, uh, <laughs> there's rules for summary executions in the game. We're used to this. Yeah. And and so when it comes out, it's like, oh, these are the bad guys. It's like, but are they, are, aren't they all? Are they all the bad guys? I guess that's the whole thing, isn't it? <laughs> yes. No, but like, how'd you feel when you read that? Jesus fuck. I, I was just like, what the hell? Really? Yeah. Like I said, I, I have to go it. back and read it two or three times. Like, I, I need to check this. I reread it. And you, can, you can tell the whole time. You can tell, like, when you reread it, um, it's obvious the whole time, but it's never obvious when you read it the first time. No one no, can guess it, that just because of how shitty the universe is. <laughs> this is it. it because it plays on our misconceptions or our preconceived notions of what the Imperium was like in 40k. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, Gav Thorpe's done a really good job of taking what we already know about the Imperium will be later and using that to make us think, well, yeah, of course this is the Imperial Army. Of course they're going to treat people like this. Brilliant. Yeah, I love no, that. It's just, so, absolutely, absolutely genius. So let's go back to the start point. Then. Yeah, the offensive fails, right? Because yes. uh, the uh, Abbot of Free Corps, um, as 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 the heroes that they are, manage to uh, to thwart uh, the enemy counteroffensive. And um, well, Dorn has to like throw in pretty much his only reserves at that point, um, yes. which is himself. <laughs> but before the reserves go in, before those reserves go in, they meet up with Keela and Amon. Oh yeah, and Keela and um, Sigismund have a history, don't they? Because Keela is the reason why Sigismund does not get on with Daddy. That's right. He's going to fall because of her. Yeah, yeah. And once again, she brings that out, doesn't she? She tells him that one day uh, the Emperor intends for him to one day slay Abaddon. So you saw I set him up with that future Emperor's children. Which, if you've read the book Black Legion, doesn't quite go to plan for Sigismund um, <laughs> but there we go never mind he does a good job though only because he's old and tired but this is also important because Dawn is clearly not happy about the Lictitio Divinitatis is he but Valdor turns around and says "Turn, hang on Malkador's given her immunity you can't do anything about it but what is another significant point is wherever there are light bringers, we're getting more warp anomalies, like faces appearing in walls and the dead starting to walk, which oh. is what Mark mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, we didn't mention what happened with Katsuhiro. Yeah, oh, let's come on to that in a moment. Let, let's finish off with okay. the kind of discussion there because Sigismund kind of does accept what Keeler is saying, isn't it? It's interesting that he's in this real conflict at the moment about what he thinks is going to happen but what also Dawn is expecting from him and Sigismund is wise enough not to share any of this information that Keeler is saying to him with Dawn. But let's talk about Katashiro, shall we? Because once again it's an Imperial Militia story that nice human element and things aren't going particularly well there are they? Well, Katsuhiro, uh, for those that don't remember, he was one of the uh, the main characters from Lost and Damned. Uh, he was a you know a, a conscript that they put in the trenches and uh, suffered uh, through weeks. I love, by the way, like this is one of my favorite parts of the book. Again, I'm I will I am an Imperial Guard player. I was I will always be at the very core 
an Imperial Guard player. I love how they um, they, they they talk about were you beyond the wall, right? Because those weeks of trench warfare outside the walls it really affected like everybody. Like there's consequences for this horror uh, that they had to actually like get through. And so they put Katsuhiro, uh, they, they put him essentially um, on, on, I guess, easy duty, right? He's just like having to like make sure no one gets out of Poxville. Well, he has a, a garrison hall, which he shares with a bunch of other veterans from the, from the outside. And, and one, one day something weird happens in the kitchen. Oh, I don't remember this bit. Yeah. Something weird happens in the kitchen and everybody sees it differently. Uh, so there's some apparition in the kitchen. Some people say it was like a disgusting, like slimy creature, like with entrails, like spilling out. Katsuhiro sees it as like a beautiful, a beautiful being gorgeous. Uh, that, that is just like beckoning to him. I guess brings down his anxiety, brings down, brings his PTSD down, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but everybody sees it differently, and that's why Amon goes to like investigate, even though he can't really fit in the mess. Yeah, because that's part of an investigation. Like, what what is going on? What what caused this to happen? The implication is that uh, this is Nurgle starting to like push against the veil, uh, especially uh, after Zardu Lyak's ritual. But I love the, the, the way that Nurgle is described in, in, in this sense that, again, it, it gives you life. It gives you comfort, right? Accepting your death and the fact that you will return to the earth and nourish the next generation. That's Nurgle. That, that is the comfort that Nurgle gives you. And it's well played in this novel, I think. Yeah, because... Nurgle's always been one of those really odd ones, hasn't it? It's like, well, why why would people devote themselves to that? But this one's getting... He takes the pain away. He takes the pain away. Lost to the damn law, doesn't it? That he's comforting and he's got that sense of humour and he makes people feel better about the conditions they're in. So you can understand, particularly in a siege environment, and we know historically sieges, generally you're more likely to be killed by disease than an enemy conflict. Mm -hmm why Nurgle is so much more powerful, which is another reason as well, how it links back to what Laic did earlier in the book, where he summons in Korbak's utter blight because that affects the mood of the defenders. But, uh, okay, so let's bring everything together. On the one hand, counteroffensive has failed because a few people from Abaddon... Because of the heroes, have, the heroes yeah, they, they, resistance. Because they... <laughs> <laughs> okay, in all seriousness, like, obviously... Chaos is not great. I don't think the Imperium is that great. But what I like, what I love about this story, this storyline, this this thread, is that it shows you why people would hate the Imperium, right? Like a legitimate reason why. Why would you throw in your lot with the War Master? It can't get much worse. I mean, yeah. maybe. <laughs> but you the lives that these people lived—you understand why they would throw in their lot with the War Master. Yeah. Anything is better than this. We also saw that with that beastman viewpoint in Lost in the Dark. Exactly! Fuck, that was so good. So, it's one of the best things about these Siege of Terror novels, is we are getting a clear idea why an average mortal would go for a War Master, because he's offering a better life. We know he's, he's offering be something life. different. Yes. And it's probably not going to be better, but the reality is it's hard to be worse. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what you get from this. It's like, yeah, I would unfurl the fucking Eye of Horus as well. You might as well give Horus a chance. Because it's almost impossible to be worse than the than the emperor was. 
Notice how the two traitor players in this discussion are very much like, no, of course we would, of course we would. And Mark, the classic custodian. <laughs> yeah, we're quick player, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> What's your opinion? <laughs> well, I mean, it's... I don't know. We don't want to get into a whole topic of discussion on chaos <laughs> and the emperor. You mean again. 129 episodes of this discussion? Yeah, the uh, emperor versus chaos and whatnot. But I mean, I I guess I could see that for these people, how could how could things get worse? But things can get worse, and and, and they do. They like, do. <laughs> so that's the reason to stay with the Imperium, in my opinion, is things could get worse than your shitty life living in a box making you know beams and girders and shit like that like it could get worse yeah you could grow tentacles exactly <laughs> dude i would love some tentacles would you not love tentacles well you could do all sorts of shit with them depends on the context really yeah exactly. <laughs> oh shit okay i didn't even think about that never mind We're moving on. It's, it's not this kind of podcast we'll edit that one share we'll edit that section shall we <laughs> God I mean, damn it, Darren! Us, right, but always bring it. Always bring us down into the mud. The one person that almost never swears is the one bringing us down into the mud. <laughs> it's always the quiet ones. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the counteroffensive has failed because uh, a number of heroes that have uh, really stepped up. And oh, just a side note, and I'll end with this. But like, I love how they talk about through most of it is like, do you think that your death will matter? Do you think that any of this matters? There's billions of people. It's like one person can change everything. And they do. <laughs> they literally yeah. do. Yeah. Um, uh, Doran's counteroffensive fails because they have fucking, they stood up against, uh, against tyranny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and for chaos. Yeah. Uh, which is the opposite of tyranny. It's also not great. <laughs> But <laughs> anyway, back back to the space. Well, oh, yeah, okay. Back so space yeah, okay. The, the, the counteroffensive has failed. There's there, there's a mass assault at, at the top, led by Karn, Abaddon, uh, Sardu Lyak, um, and then again, like it's what I was mentioning a minute ago, Dorn commits his last reserves, which is Dorn. Well, and Dorn and Sigismund, isn't it? So yeah. they they just unleash. Them. Oh, that Sigismund. Sigismund versus Karn, they're like, we, we've been waiting for this yeah. one, right? Well, we have, but I think this is something that Mark alluded to earlier, because we were expecting, because we, we've always known Sigismund and Karn have a big dust-up at the Siege of Terror. We've always known that. Mm. And when we saw both of them in the same location, because originally Sigismund sees Abaddon in the distance, doesn't he? And he starts trying to decide, should I go for them? Because Keyless told him, that he will kill Abaddon. He's he's destined to kill Abaddon. So we think, is this for a moment? But he uses common sense and actually decides, no, we need to do a fighting retreat. At this point, Khan arrives. And the description of Khan, he is fully embedded in the nails at this stage. And the powers of Khan are swelling him up to massive levels. Yeah, his, his muscles and- are bursting through his heart. <laughs> yeah, like, like I, do you remember the picture from second edition... Like the full page picture of Karn, uh, the black and yes. white one. That's yes. kind of how I picture him here. Yeah. Like he's just like going fucking crazy. Like when he's fighting. Well, I mean, there's some other duels actually that happen here too. I mean, this is the most important one, I think. But the other one between uh, who's it, Kroger and uh, Kroger and um, Ron. Ron, yeah. There's that one too that happens too, and Ron gets beaten back by Kroger. Yeah, and it's only because Sigmund jumps in. Yeah. Yep. To help him out. So we were expecting 
this to be the moment, weren't we, between Khan and Sigismund. We, we thought this is going to be a big dust-up. And to be honest, I was a little bit disappointed. What about you guys with this? Because Sigismund is clearly the better fighter, but it doesn't last particularly long, does it? Well, he gets his... No. Sorry, Mark, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, no, he, he it doesn't last very long. Like, it seems like, like you're saying, Darren, it seems like he's more skilled, but Karn, swollen with the power of the Blood God, just is is beating him down. Like, it, it's really no fight. Like, the only reason he, he gets away is because uh, a whole bunch of other people come in to save him, right? And, like, yeah. distract Karn for a brief moment while he's killing all these other Imperial Fists, because he would have died. Yeah. And it, it goes back to the whole thing with Euph- Euphrates, that their champ, like the like uh, the, the champions have power from their gods. He's going to need it too, to be able yes. to defeat them. Yeah, and this is significant for Warhawk. So this is a direct link to Warhawk here. But it's actually Dawn that steps in to save Sigismund, isn't it? Which does yeah. say, at the end of the day, the, the baseline of their relationship, that Dawn is prepared to step in to save his son. Yeah. Khan then goes for Dawn, and it's just a casual backhand <laughs> that sends Khan flying. Yeah, he just, yeah, backhands Karn, like, you know, like, 100 feet away, and then Karn just gets up and starts killing people around him anyway. Like, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, Perarabo so. comes in to take all the glory, right? That's a oh, big this part. is such a good scene. It's great. Well, it's it's great. As far as the battle between uh, uh, Karn and Sigismund, I love the idea that uh, Sigismund, because this has been set up from the beginning. What are the best fighters of all the legions? You know, Savitar, Karn, Sigismund. Swain. Lucius, Corswania, yeah. and and he goes through it like as as Sigismund's fighting Karn is like I can beat Karn, I can't beat Karn the Betrayer, I can't beat this thing. This yeah, thing is not I Karn, can. I can't beat this. Uh, which I think is so like poignant. It's just like I think I could, I I might have been able to beat regular Karn, but like fucking <laughs> with all these levels, <laughs> he's been powered yeah. up. He's too powered Damn, up. Been, I can't beat him. Karn's done all these side quests. Damn yeah, him. He does. Yes. He, hasn't, he hasn't followed the storyline quest. I've only followed the storyline quest. That's not he's been fair. milling like crazy. Yeah, well, Karn's the murder hobo of the party, and Sigismund's the paladin who's like, oh, they're murdering the town. I don't want any of that experience, so I'm just going to go off into the forest, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, like Karn got all the levels while you're doing, yeah. like, while you're like dicking around trying to help people. I'm <laughs> Karn's going around killing goblins and getting all the XP. <laughs> All the XP. The best part after that, yeah, as we're uh, as we're leading to uh, uh, Darren, is so fucking rad. Because uh, again, we have to remember that the Lion Gate spaceport. It's not a spaceport. It's a space elevator. <laughs> so, at the very top of it, in space, the top of the spaceport, and it can dock ships. And what ship comes to dock? The Iron Blood. They the dock Iron Blood. Gloriana. They dock a Gloria, and not just any Gloria, because Vian Blood is often talked with one of the larger of the Gloriana class as well. It's it's the only ship that could take on the eventual spirit, I think. Yeah, the Phalanx yeah, could, Phalanx not really a ship. Phalanx isn't a Gloriana, though. Phalanx is unique. Phalanx is a space, it, it's a space station. Possibly the Red Tier. Um, or what's the um, Dark Angel one? Shit. Mark? That's a Mark question. reason. Invisible reason, yeah. That's a yeah, big ship, yeah. That, that's a big one. It's first yeah, but the lion's too busy, like, cyclo- cycling torpedoes. Yeah, he's... he's <laughs> shit. Low cyclone. He's committing war crimes in the Galactic North. <laughs> yeah. But with the Iron Blood Dock, and the description of the effects of this docking in atmosphere, 
is huge, isn't it? We, we, the weather conditions it, it causes around the Imperial Palace, you get these sparks of lightning. It reminded me, you know that initial scene in Aliens when they're dropping through the atmosphere and you've got the atmospheric effects? Yeah. It reminded me of that. Okay, yeah, that's cool. Because it it doesn't it doesn't dock in space, eh? It it it's it's landing lower down, right? Yeah, it's in the very highest level of the atmosphere, isn't it? So it actually yeah. does enter the atmosphere, which is terrifying for a ship of that size. Yeah, but they also start docking um, the coffin ships, don't they, off the Legios? Mm. So you, yeah, you yeah, start to get yeah. yeah, you start to get Titans being docked and starting to be immediately coming through the elevators. And obviously, swarms of new traitor forces coming through as well, including uh, void armored militia troops, or certainly Imperial Army. Yeah. And, and of course, guess... the most important person that lands, fucking Pruderabo's here. Yeah. He's he been hands off the whole time. Yeah, I know. It's kind of like, <laughs> you know, like surprise, it wasn't me. <laughs> no, but Forks, uh, Forks is kind of bitter at the whole. I, I, I know an iron warrior being bitter. Well, yeah, he's, he's bitter because they're all surprised he survived. Well, he's the only one that survived. Yeah. <laughs> but they did a ton of damage. Like it, it, it was well, crucial that that insertion force caused so much fucking damage, and they made it possible for the whole thing to uh, to succeed. Um, but he shows up. It's like, oh great, Pergrabo's per just gonna come in and like, take the glory. It's like this legion is fucked. Fuck this legion. And that's honestly, that's like that's sort of what happens with the Iron Warriors. Yeah. It's not even though like, he's asked even, about this. It's history. not even that they stop being Iron Warriors like the same way that you know some of the legions stop being their, their legions. The Iron Warriors still Iron Warriors, but it's like fuck these guys, fuck all of you, fuck this. But he is asked, isn't he? He is asked about it. It's like, well, what are you gonna do? And he says, Well, it's better to win a war than nothing. For it's better to win a war for nothing than lose. So he goes back to yeah. the Legion. So it's I, I know, but like those. one of the reasons the Iron Warriors turned against the Emperor is because the Emperor was wasting their lives in battles of attrition, just throwing lives away. And, and Force looking at it as like Perturabo just did the exact same fucking thing that the Emperor does. Yeah. It's because like, they've known nothing. Yeah, they've known nothing better, have they? But we haven't quite finished with a fight in the start. Oh, no, 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 we haven't. Because we've got some key moments. So, the traitors are clearly pushing on. But, you know, Dawn, he's a Primarch. And we've seen in other novels where Primarchs can turn the tide for battle. So, we cut to Laek and Abaddon, don't we? To their, to their area for fighting. And Abaddon is... Well, Laek is constantly trying to push Abaddon into just accepting whatever the Chaos Gods want. But, as we know from 40k Abaddon, and we're starting to see... His per- that kind of personality, his 40k personality starts to rise a lot more during the Siege of Terror novels. He's refusing it. So he just leads a charge it back into the Lordest Lines to save Khan. And I thought that was a really good moment because we've never really had Khan and Abaddon's relationship explored at all. But clearly, Khan is too important to let, let die yeah. in the space war. So Abaddon goes for him. However, Dawn tries to get there as well. And Laic steps in. Now he's got his two blade slaves, hasn't he? Which yeah, are gorgeous models. They are they are still gorgeous models. They're still some of my favourite world, but word bearing models. But like you say, yeah, it, it doesn't last particularly long. 
Primarch drove the hilt of his chain blade down, slamming the pommel into the neck and shoulder of the slave. Spine snapped. The never-born-infused carcass flopped like a netted fish, spasming across the ferrocrete ahead of a trail of blood and dark ichor. If Abaddon was to strike, it had to be now. Dorne would be upon Laak in moments. The Vox crackled, and Laak's voice hissed into his ear. I give up my life not for you, mortal soul, but for the glory of chaos that you will come to serve. Gathering more chaos power, Lyak let his shield collapse, the energy of the dome whirling into his staff head, becoming a burning black flame. He swung with sword and staff together, both trailing sorcerers fire to crash against the golden armor of the Emperor's Praetorian. A storm of power exploded from the contact. Once more forcing the Primarch back, arm raised across his face as sable flames engulfed him. Again, Lyak attacked, this time to strike the ground at Dorne's feet. His voice rose in unintelligible supplication, a screeched prayer to the gods of the warp. Ferrocrete exploded upwards, becoming claws that snatched at the Primarch's limbs. Dorne fended them off with swings of his chainsword, spinning teeth chewing through the animated surface in a shower of sparks and stone. Still, the air around the sorcerer writhed faster, Neverborn flitting into and out of existence, half glimpsed by Abaddon as his gaze moved between his duel with Dorne and the wider battle. Dorne's arrival had bolstered the defense, but he had not brought sufficient reinforcements with him to retake the terminals. Karn had resumed his rampage further along the main bridge while Iron Warriors companies led by Kroger, seeing Dorne engaged, forged ahead across flanking viaducts and monorail tracks. Dreadnoughts crashed like battering rams into the last ranks of the Imperial Fists, met by cannonades from tanks who raid along the approaches to the main bastion. Higher burned the immortal flames that wreathed Lyak, so dark they swallowed light, yet edged with a power that was blinding in its intensity. A third sorcerer's detonation rocked the Primarch, but Abaddon could see that such conjurations were not given freely. Lyak's armor was peeling away like skin flicking from charred flesh, carried away on the thermals of warp energy that he channeled through his body. Revealed skin was ancient like wrinkled parchment, yellowing and thin, devoid of the muscle one expected of a warrior of the Legionus Astartes, little more than withered bone. There was another form around the sorcerer, far larger but less distinct, a winged, mind shadow that matched Dorne in height, but far broader of shoulder, and possessed of arms like writhing tentacles. Abaddon wondered if this was the true form of Lyak or some Neverborn brought to his summoning, Whichever, the demon struggled to manifest as did any other, sometimes seemingly whole in flesh, other times nothing more than a stretch of vaporous movement. Dorne advanced with purpose, hanging his folter upon his belt to take up his chain blade in both hands once more. Lyak was almost unmoving before him, flames of warp power spitting from his morphous, shifting silhouette. The Praetorian ignored the sparks as they scythed across his armor, bringing back Storm's teeth for a blow. Remember this moment, Abaddon. I give my life so that you will take my place upon the path of glory. The chainsword fell, cleaving through apparition and physical body alike. Flames and blood were as one, showering from the churning teeth as they slashed down through horn head and armor. What was left alive detonated with a burst of multicolored light. Abaddon had never seen a primer tossed aside like a child's toy before and felt a second shockwave wash over him like a hurricane across his nerves. Abaddon's vision blurred, and for an instant he thought he saw a great tree, its leafless branches ablaze with dark flames. The fires crawled down its trunk, burning down to its roots. 
The crash of heavy warplay drew him back. Dorn had landed a score of meters away and lay unmoving, coils of oily smoke drifting from the joints of his armor. Dozens of Imperial fists sprinted towards him, voices raised in despair. Of Lyak, all that remained was a rune-marked crater in the Ferrocrete, its meters-deep sides glowing with power from sigils burnt into the material. From the ripples of flame left in the bottom of the hole, a clawed hand appeared, red-scaled and taloned. An arm followed as a Neverborn pulled itself through the breach, struggling like an obscene chick from an egg, dripping with the life fluid of the sorcerer. It was not much larger than a human, spindly of limb and possessed of a long, bulbous head with dead white eyes and curling horns. A belt of skulls hung around its waist, and a triangular bladed sword of dark grey gleamed in its fist. It pulled itself out fully and stood upon the stone of the Imperial Palace, the first true demon to set foot upon Terra. Beyond, Dorn rose to one knee amid a creaking of armor, hands still gripping the hilt of his chainsword. A second demon emerged from the ruin of Lyak, bearing needle teeth, forked tongue tasting the sweet air of this forbidden world. Yet it was not the demons that drew the eye of Dorn. His head was tilted back, looking up to the darkening skies. Abaddon turned slightly to follow his gaze and saw the blue plasma jets of a gunship falling through the murk, dark against the continuing muzzle flare of cannons higher up the flanks of the spaceport. As it approached, Abaddon saw the colors of the Iron Warriors, with the fourth legion symbol embossed in gold upon its prow. Legionaries scattered as it landed behind the Warmaster's captain, front ramp whining open even before the landing gear touched down. From the ruddy interior advanced six automatons, striding in perfect unison, weapons trained upwards as they formed a half ring around the front of the gunship. With thunderous tread on the metal ramp, the Lord of Iron followed, his immense hammer in hand. And Dawn kills Layak. Absolutely smacks him to pieces, doesn't he? It's because Layak is essentially telling Abaddon, this is my fate. Everything happens for a reason. Like, I'm, Doran's going to kill him. This is Layak's Obi-Wan moment. Yeah. This is yeah. Obi-Wan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. And what does he become? Well, when Dawn finally gets the hidden, and we can only describe as bursts Laic, because that's the only way to describe it, Laic becomes a massive war portal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and suddenly, really if you're Dorn, you got a problem. <laughs> yeah. And I really like the description about how a first Neverborn start to manifest. They're clearly what we recognise as blood letters, aren't they? Yeah. And I think that's interesting. The first demons that manifest are corny. Well, this, I, I, and I think this is well played because who is causing most damage? It's Korn's favorite, uh, Karn. Yeah. Right. Karn is 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 unleashing so much blood and so much violence um, that, of course, Korn would be favored for for this particular um, manifestation. But it's interesting because. Nurgle also wants to get involved as well, doesn't he? With bringing in Neverborn. Also, I should note, Korn is the first god. 
portal has been breached. Zardu did it. Yeah. And so let's do a cut scene because with the first <laughs> Neverborn now appearing on Terra, this is where Korbak's utter blight finally gets to manifest, isn't he? Yeah, and uh, immediately dies after like two pages. But let's consider who he was up against. So we have in one location Keela and the Lightbringers, Amon and Malkador. Yeah. In one location. So, you know, the power level is quite high. You have what will become an Imperial Saint <clears throat> and a Custodes character and Malkador, second most powerful psyker in the universe. It's, it's like if it's like you want to play a a D and D module that's designed for players one to three levels, but you play your like t- level twenty characters. <laughs> yeah. So Corvette manifests, and this is one of the few times we see Malkador unleash himself, isn't it? Yeah, he just starts friggin' ripping into Corvette, just blasting away at him. Like it's yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty fucking awesome. And Amon gets well in there as well, doesn't he, with his uh, guardian spear? Oh, yeah, yeah. Jumping in, stabbing, slashing, doing all the cool custody stuff. Yeah. Well, realistically, it's Malkador doing the hard work. Well, yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't last very long. So like you say, he, he doesn't last particularly long. But what happens at the end of that, because that then closes out that storyline, so it's a good place to end it now, is Malkador allows Keela to carry on collecting her coal, and he assigns Amon as her bodyguard, effectively. Yeah. <laughs> which Amon is overjoyed with. Yeah, which is really, it's re- I don't know, that still strikes me as strange, right? Like him being assigned the bodyguard of the opposite of what, you know, they stand for. <laughs> well, I think Malkador realizes, because don't forget, he did this as the grand experiment to see the impact of effectively what will become the imperial cult has mm-hmm. and i think they've seen that it does have a positive effect on the emperor yeah so malkador's can't condone what they're doing but he can certainly let them off the leash to allow them to just carry on just not with the full blessing of the imperial state yeah i guess that's true right because it could be like a an eye-opening moment for amon right like to see that oh wait a minute there actually is strength this strength in the emperor. Yeah. And Keela is the central power of that. So she needs to be kept alive because she's, yeah. she's a symbol more than anything else. If she dies, that threatens this very, very fragile Imperial cult. And who better to look after than someone, than someone who's genetically engineered to protect someone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that closes out that storyline, doesn't it? So we, we can tick that one off. So, do we want to go back to Dawn and Perturabo having a bit of a face-off? They do have a bit of a face-off. Perturabo won this one. His strategy worked. And as far as forces, because we're talking at the beginning, it's like, how do you how do you break the wall? How do you how do you get into the Imperial Fortress? And Lionsgate is the obvious one, but it's Perturabo did something that almost no other Primarch does. He delegated. Because he knew that his brother uh, had been spent uh, had been spending years assuming or like planning around him, so let's get this idiot to do it, and it worked. He delegated, work. it worked, and he won. He wins. Yeah, and Dawn recognizes that, doesn't he? But Dawn also recognizes he has to 
give a little bit more time to get they withdraw baseball. Yeah. So they do withdraw, but Dawn is baiting him, isn't he? He's he's thrown every insult at Pertraba, trying to get them into involved in finally a face to face fight. And what does Pertraba do? Walks away. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I was so surprised. I'm like, here it comes, you know, and we get some face smashing nope. in. And it's like, no, I won. You know, peace, like yep. mic drop. I'm out. <laughs> you didn't think I was going to be able to do this, and I did it. I proved that I'm better than you. And that's the whole thing. He's MJF. I'm better than you, and you know it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's interesting. I think realistically, the traitors win this one. It is a traitor victory. But Dawn is pretty convinced that they did the loyalists did well because they held out longer than they expected. Yeah. But Malkador is very, very much like, no, this is a problem. Magnus has landed. We've also That's right. now traits, we, we've also got demons manifesting as well. So that's only going to weaken the Emperor further. So Malkador is taking very much the the bigger holistic view with a conflict with a warp as well. Whereas strategically, Dawn is right because they are playing for time. I don't it was taken in three weeks. That is not a long, a long time. I mean, but this thing is the size of a fucking continent, and the Iron Warriors took it in three weeks. You know, the like fucking the Battle of Verdun was ten months. Battle of Stalingrad was five months. Yeah, but they didn't have the Starties. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Red Army know, I... Starties would have would have definitely done would have definitely changed changed the war. <laughs> yeah, just slightly. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Well, it's I guess from like the Doran perspective, yeah, it's a victory in time, right? Like even if it's a short amount of time, like even if it's you know three, four weeks, it's still three, four weeks that gets added to you know help uh, uh, to 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 stay and fight one more day, right? Till the reinforcements can arrive. So I, it's not necessarily a great like look at it from Doran's perspective that oh, it's just a bit more time when it clearly like the the traders did a great job here. Yeah. Yeah, it's overwhelmingly a good trade to victory because they can now bring down their heavy forces, they can bring down titans, they can land far more troops safely without the risk of getting shot down. They've now got a direct feed onto one of the main gates into the Imperial Palace. So it's it's a big trade to victory. And as Malkador correctly says, in terms of the war and the war, that's now going to be much more badly affected because Magnus is here and there's never born manifesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there is a final cutscene, isn't there? So you, you do get this thing of you'd have then have the, if this was a film, you'd have the end credits and then there's a final cutscene, which is the first of the perpetuals we get involved in the Siege of Terror, which is John Grammaticus arriving on Terror. And it's interesting he arrives outside Ababahive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was like a oh interesting okay so you arrived outside this so i guess he's got a long journey ahead of him yeah and but this is the first time we do get one perpetual so this is we now know for a fact that the perpetual storyline is starting to be more interwoven into siege of terror yeah which i'm particularly pleased with because i love the perpetual storylines oh yeah definitely well the ones so, that are still alive after fucking eldred decided to murder them all <laughs> yeah, but they were the bad perpetuals. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they weren't the good ones, JP. Jeez. <laughs> well, yeah. okay, yeah, all Pearson all... and John Grammaticus 
You've what are the other ones that are still alive? Um, Avera. That's true. Yeah. You've got Avera. She, she's a good Because Eldred like, had most of the murder. This whole yes, book about yeah. him just murdering perpetuals. Yeah. But what, what do you expect? Elder kid in monkeys. What, what, do, you, what do you expect yeah. is going to happen? But anyway, so we've covered everything. JP, what would you say is your favorite storyline? Uh, or your or your favorite? Well, I think I know you... where this is going. <laughs> Honestly, my favorite part of the whole thing is Kroger, because you get the impression, because we know what he becomes, right? Uh, these are Graham and Neil's characters from the uh, Iron Warriors uh, stories. So yes, he falls to corn. Uh, he becomes sort of like a Karn-like character. I like him. What's fascinating is how good he actually is because his strategies work. They're actually really in like when when um uh, this storyline is developed and and Putarab was like, well, I'll put Kroger in charge. Uh that way Dorn won't know what's going on. It's gonna be completely chaotic and whatever. He comes up with some fucking ideas. <laughs> like inserting people through like um through like a meat shield as like a shiv into like the body of the spaceport. That's brilliant. I mean, he, he came up with some really good ideas. So Kroger for me is my favorite thing in, in that, like uh, it shows you that he's underestimated b- both by the fan base and also by his own legion. What about yourself? Uh, yeah, but they're free call. I, I think that storyline is so well written. Um, that final reveal of the Unfurling for War Masters banner. <laughs> so good. It's just, yeah, I, there are many, many good moments in this. I really liked Sardulaic's sacrifice on the Sky Bridge. I thought that was a really good moment. The descriptions of the Neverborn bursting through, I really enjoyed that. But I think the overwhelming thing I took away from this book was that entire Aberbeth storyline and how it culminated in something that we had no idea it was going to go in that direction. What about you, Mark? Um, that storyline, like you said, that one was fantastic and I absolutely love it. Um, thinking about the other parts of the story, I really enjoyed the parts with Frox and his insertion force. It just seemed like something that you don't normally see happening with the Iron Warriors. And uh, like everything to do with what they're doing inside there is just fantastic. Like the fact that we don't know what we're doing in here. We're going to let the enemy decide what we're doing in here. Yeah, I know. Right? That was like, interesting. It's so good. Those constant choices they have and they do keep track of things for the iron warriors players as well. Right. Like eventually they're starting to run an ammunition and they're using other people's bolters and everything like that. And like scavenging for weapons. It's fantastic. Just the whole story through. And he's like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Oh wait a minute! I survived. Like, <laughs> I also fuck this end. legion. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of like fuck these guys. <laughs> uh, I totally agree. I think this is uh, again. Uh, none of these books have been a disappointment so far. This, uh, uh, I, I I love First Wall. I look forward to doing. What's the next one? That's uh, next one is Sons of the Selenar, right? No, technically, Sons of the Selenar goes between Solar War and Lost and Damned. So, so which, is, we, which is the next we, one we're we, doing, is my question. <laughs> well, the, what is the next main Siege of Terror book? Um, uh, oh, the next one would be the... Uh, oh. oh, is it Saturnine? Uh, yeah, it'd be Saturnine, so. yeah. Yeah. Um, yep, Saturnine, yeah. Okay, I have opinions on that one. <laughs> Mark, have you read Saturnine yet? 
I have not read Saturnine yet, too. I'm just interested. Um, right. I want to I want to know if Angron's gonna fight Custodes in front of a door, like in the cover. Like I just want to know if, if that's gonna happen. Darren, does it happen? I've read. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> I will go buy that Tell you this what, week. If you want no spoilers, but if you want good Angron action, Echoes of Eternity is your novel. Nice. I cannot nice. wait to do that one. That is an amazing <laughs> book, but I'm not going to give any spoilers. We've got a way to go for that one. Excellent. Well, that was our our special on book three of it's book three, right? Yeah, book three of the Seizure Terror series, The First Wall by Gaff Thorpe. Once again, I'd like to uh, thank Darren as usual, our special guest Mark, and uh, as usual, thanks for listening. Without death, you will die.
Yeah. <laughs>